why don't you turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. We're going to read from verse 11 onwards this morning. So as you're, uh, as you're turning there, as we're meandering back in and finding our seats, let's just pray. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful if we stop for a moment and just think of the reality of who you are. How could we not be overflowing with gratitude for your love and your mercy that you express towards us? Lord, not only did you make a way, did you send your son, but continually you pour out your love upon us. How great is your love for us. Lord, I thank you for your word I thank you that we can worship you, we can encounter you, we can meet with you. And even this morning, Lord, I thank you that you have things, as always you do, as a loving Father would, to show us, to teach us, bringing discipline where we need that, encouragement, correction. So my prayer, Lord, is just open our eyes to see you. Open our hearts to know you. We want to encounter you, Jesus, not just encounter a sermon in words but the living reality of the Lord Jesus Christ that you express through your living word. May that manifestation be a reality in our hearts today. Just still the voices, still the distraction. Help us to see you. Give us a clarity today. We love you, Jesus. And we gather to see you, to know you, and to see your name exalted in us and through us. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. First John chapter 3, we're going to read verse 11 for those who are, are still coming in. Turn there, get ready. We're in this series preaching through this letter of the Apostle John. And we've begun this section at the beginning of chapter 3 where John unpacks the radical nature of the love of God. He says, see what kind of love the Father has for us, that we're children. And we looked at that. We looked at the reality of what that shows us about God, of what it shows about us, of how we live our lives in response to his incredible love. And verse 10 is where we ended last time. He talks about the evidence. By this it is evident that we are the children of God. Two realities, that we practice righteousness, so we covered last time, and that we love one another. And then verse 11. This is where we pick up the story now. This is our passage for today. It says this, For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in you by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers for if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him how does God's love abide in him little children let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is God's word. The evidence of sons and daughters. And you'll notice, if you haven't already, as we read through this letter, that John does not write in a linear fashion. 
He's not building truth upon truth and precept upon precept. He writes in a style that's often called amplification. So he has a few central ideas, but he'll continue to come back to one thought. And we've seen that a few times already. We've talked about love. And here he says again, love one another. And in fact, he makes it clear in in verse 11. He says, this is the message that you've heard from the beginning. It's nothing new. In fact, he he said earlier in chapter 1, he says, I'm not writing to reveal new truths. I'm writing to amplify the reality of them for you. And so he is going to talk here about loving one another. And he's going to come back and continue to talk about loving one another. And then he will go on to continue talking about one another again and again and again. And in fact, as I read that passage, I thought, Lord, it's almost a challenge at times to preach on a passage like this and to bring something new, isn't it? How many of us have never heard a sermon about loving one another? Anyone? Even people who don't come to church, even people who are non-believers, if you say, well, what, what are some of the messages of the Bible? One right at the top of the list will be, well, it's, it's all about loving your neighbor, isn't it? It's about, it's about loving one another. You see, I, I think this is in some ways the most obvious truth in this letter that John writes. And yet he continues to emphasize it. He continues to camp back here because it's one of the most difficult for us actually to grasp. It is the most difficult for us to put in to practice. There's nothing new here, but we're coming back and I'm going to come back and we're going to continue to come back until we see the evidence. Not just the reality of, well, we've heard the sermon on it, but he's after the evidence of love in the lives of his readers. And we too should be after the evidence of love in our own lives. I was encouraged this morning, actually, because we were out the back for the prayer meeting and Karen King, I'm sure she won't mind. Do you mind if I share this? Where is she? Too late now. But she came in there at the beginning of the prayer meeting before the service and not, not knowing what I was going to preach on. And she sat down and she said, you know what? I just feel like God really strongly has on his heart for us today. It's all about loving one another. And I thought, isn't that interesting? I said, did you know what the sermon was? Did you happen to walk past and see the sermon notes? Because she had exactly the same sense. So I was encouraged. Hopefully she was encouraged too. At least two of us are on the same page. If the rest of you are not, well, there's not much I can do about that. Hopefully by the time we finish, you will be on the same page. There's nothing new about this, but we've got to get this. This is the evidence of what it actually means to love. And see, here here is the tension. Here is the dilemma. Here is the issue. Karen read in... in, uh, the pre-service prayer meeting from 1 Corinthians 13. How many have read that passage before? How many have not read that passage? Wonderful picture of love, isn't it? Wonderful picture. Now, I'm very comfortable with that being a picture of God's love. His love is patient and it's kind and it's never going to give up on me and we sing about it. His, you know, his love's never going to fail me. It's going to pursue me. The only problem is it's not just supposed to be a picture of his love, is it? That's supposed to be a picture of my love. Now, that's where things become a little more confronting, a little more difficult. <sighs> Let me be perfectly honest and put it this way. 
You see, I find it a lot easier to love when I'm only loving myself. Anyone else like that? Some of us are very, very good at that. I find it a lot easier to be long-suffering and patient and kind when I'm only dealing with me. It's other people that have the issue. That's when all my hard work is undone. But unfortunately, that is where the rubber hits the road. And let me just give you the, the emphasis straight up front. This is not something that we can ever do in our own strength. If you're thinking, well, that sounds impossible. How can we ever show perfect love to other people, the love that we have been shown? Let me just tell you, you can't. You can't. But this love is not something that we're supposed to work up of ourselves. It's his supernatural gift that not only are we to receive, which we've talked about, it's that very love that we are to reflect. It's a supernatural gift and it's a calling that we need to take seriously if we are to be what we're called to be, which is the sons and the daughters of God. So let me look at just a few different uh, aspects of, of love. And I understand and I appreciate that most of you would say, well, we've heard all this before. But I'm encouraged that John's saying, look, I'm not trying to tell you anything new here. I'm just trying to somehow allow this to resonate in your hearts. So I'm not trying to speak to your heads. We've done a lot of heady teaching already in this little epistle, talking about truth and all sorts of different things. I'm really trying to encourage your hearts with the essential nature of love. We've got to get this. This is the evidence, John is saying, that we are actually sons and daughters. And that's how we want to live. So I want to look at a couple of, of perhaps broader perspectives of love. And then there'll be a personal application as well from this passage. And as I said, we will return again and again and again and unpack some different aspects of what it truly means to love one another. But first of all, let me make this premise from a broad perspective. See, why is it that we keep coming back to love? Why is it that love is so important? Not just to John, remember. Jesus was the one who said, it's by love that all men will know that you're my disciples. He continued continually and continued to teach his disciples to love one another. Not only Jesus, but then the apostles, Paul. I mean, he, he wrote the chapter on love extensively in his writings. He said, in fact, you could prophesy, you could understand all wisdom and knowledge, but if you don't have love, it counts for something? No, it counts for nothing. I mean, if that doesn't mess with your head, then what does? How is it that love is so essential in our walk with God that we could do everything else, all the things we dream about, seeing signs and wonders, prophesying, revival, whatever it is that is your greatest desire. We could accomplish all that, and yet if there's no love, then we've accomplished nothing. How can anything be that essential? Well, I would say simply this. The thing that is very clear as you read through this letter here, John's encouragement as you read and study the teachings of Jesus and of the early apostles, you cannot get away from the fact that the nature of the kingdom is love. It just is. Whichever way you dice it and you slice it, you cannot come away with any other impression. 
And I love that this is John who is talking about us. And we, we did cover a few of these points when we looked at the introductory uh, session for this study that we're in now. But I want us to revisit it. Turn with me to Mark 10, 35, because I am sure that some of you weren't there. And I think this is just a wonderful picture of where love needs to take us. Remembering this is the Apostle John. He's writing. He's often called the Apostle of Love. And you can understand why, because he emphasizes it and he continues to come back again and again and again and again. And so often we see John in uh, depictions, in some of the medieval paintings, as this perhaps weak, almost effeminate man. He's gently leaning on Jesus' breast. But if you look at the picture of John that we see, and we don't get a lot, but we get some insights into who he was as a person, you see a very different picture. This is Mark chapter 10, verse 35. It says, James and John. Now, these two are brothers. They're always thick as thieves. They're regularly together. They're always Peter, James, and John, or James and John. They were, if you like, in the inner circle of Jesus. It says this. The sons of Zebedee, James and John, came up to him, being Jesus, said, Teacher, what, uh, teacher we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Kind of an interesting request, isn't it? They come to Jesus, and obviously they've premeditated a response. This isn't something that they have just thought up on the spot. They said, Jesus, we've been talking, we've had a bit of a discussion, and we've decided that you need to do for us whatever we ask of you. So I think Jesus, very graciously, I'm sure he knew what they would ask. He said to them, well, what is it that you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left, in your glory. Kind of an interesting request, isn't it? I mean, just think about this. I would love to have been a part of that discussion. So they're premeditating. They say, look, we've, we've got to ask Jesus this question. They've seen the kingdom. They've seen some of the, the demonstration of the miraculous signs of Jesus. Walking on water, he's multiplying bread, he's preaching the kingdom. Maybe they're reading Isaiah and talking about the Lord seated on the throne in glory. And somehow in their thinking, they say, you know what? There's just something that's missing in this picture. We need a seat either side of the king of glory when he comes into his kingdom. Kind of a bold request, isn't it? And I think at times, it's easy for us to judge them. But how often do we pray a similar prayer? We say, Lord, hallowed be your name. You're wonderful. We love you, Jesus. Now, please, can we make this whole thing about me? In Jesus' name, amen. You don't ever pray to prayer like that? Maybe it's not quite that overt and quite that obvious. But I think this is the first reality of the nature of a kingdom of love. You see, somehow John has moved from this place. And if you read on the story, um, not only, well, he, he asked for a throne either side. And then all the other disciples, of course, are furious with him. They're thinking, how dare he? He just wants to promote himself, which he did. He came to Jesus and said, look, you know, we know you're coming into glory and we just want to make sure that we've got a place. We want to make sure that this is all about us, not just you, Jesus and us, not just us, Jesus and us, for your glory, Lord. Amen. But somehow he has moved from this place of self-seeking to this passage now, and this is where it's so 
profound. So profound, this turnaround, from self-exaltation to self-sacrifice. He says, you've got to love to such a degree that you lay down your lives for your brothers. I mean, that's a radical love. How is it that John, the apostle of love, gets to this place where it was all about him and now it's all about others? And I want to make this observation because we see it so clearly, not just in John's writing, but in John's life. There is this process of love maturing. Now, we read earlier in chapter 3 that it begins with this encounter of God's love. How great is his love that we are children. We are. We don't have to do anything to earn it. We couldn't earn it if we tried. We have experienced and come into a baptism of love through the work of Christ on the cross through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's an experience that we must have and we need to have. In fact, Paul writes to the Corinthians in one point, and he says, it's great that you earnestly, he says, as newborn babes, desire spiritual milk. And literally that phrase means, as a newborn baby would cry out for milk. How many parents of newborn kids have we got here? I've had a few this year. They're all out in the cry room or elsewhere perhaps. How is it that a newborn cries out for milk? Is it a polite cry? Is it a patient cry? They say, look, I'm really hungry, but I'm just happy to wait, you know, whenever suits. I know it's your night time, and we'll just wait to the morning if that's okay, just whenever you can slot me in. It would be great. The one question you never ask the parents of a newborn is, how was your night's sleep? I'll say, I'll show you some sleep. Because there is this longing and this yearning, this baby crying out. All they can think about is me, me, me. And you, you don't begrudge that. Well, perhaps you do at times. You begrudge the lack of sleep. But you don't hold it against them because you know that's just their nature. That's the nature of a baby. To be me-focused. It's all about me. I just need my food and I need it now. But then also elsewhere paul says to the corinthians but my desire is that you'd grow up that you'd move on from crying out like a baby i'm, I'm still feeding you milk because you're crying me 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 but i want to feed you meat i want to give you something of substance and all of that to say we have got to be careful because we live in such a self-saturated society where society and so often even our church services and experiences are all geared towards who? They're all geared to me, me, me. This is about what I want, what I want in a sermon, what I want in a worship, what I want in a pastor. It's me, 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 me. I think sometimes as Christians, we are stunted in our growth because we can't move past the me, me, me. God, where's my chairs? I just want to remind you, you know, you're a glorious God and I love you, but I want to make sure you're aware that I need a chair either side of you in your kingdom. This is me, this is me, this is me. I think sometimes God's like, look, I, I want, I have so many things for you. I want to see you grow up. I want to see you mature. I have a wonderful purpose and a plan. But we've got to get you out of diapers first. We've got to teach you to crawl so that you can then walk, so that you can then accomplish great things for my glory. We've got to move from me, me, me to you, you, you. 
to this love that is so encompassing and so complete that all we want to do is literally lay down our lives for our brothers. How many people are there yet? No. So we've all got a ways to go. I'm praying, Lord, do whatever you have to do because I want to get this. Not just the love coming in, not just the me, me, me. Not just receiving, but reflecting your love to others in a self-sacrificing way. See, that's the measure of true sons and daughters. It's not just how much love's coming in. It's how much that love is being reflected. And if you're not sure, why don't you ask the people around you? Be bold enough. Ask your husband, ask your wife, maybe in a safe environment so that you can deal with the response. It's not just the inflow, it is the outflow. So love is the foundation of the kingdom. I'm going to skip through a few things. We'll cover them in later weeks. But the other fascinating thing, let's just jump back to the passage in 1 John. So he's talking about this love, this self-sacrificing love, but he directs it within certain parameters. And if we look together, he says at verse 13, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. So he's moved from talking about the love of the brother to the love of the brothers. And he's saying, look, there is a lot of hate around in the world. Don't be alarmed by that. Anyone notice there's some haters around? There's a bit of hate in the world around us. But he said, this is what should mark not only your lives, but your communities. This is how you know that you've moved out of death into life, is that you have love for the brothers. Some translations say the brethren. We could translate it into our modern vernacular and say the love for the church. And this is perhaps what is easy to miss in John's writing. You see, he's talking about an expression of love but he's specifically encouraging them, exhorting them, challenging them that this love must play out in the midst of their communities. And John is writing here, he doesn't make it clear, but it's certainly clear from some of his other letters, not just to one church, but he's writing to a whole group of churches. So some epistles are written to specific churches, specific leaders. John was an elder, we believe, over a number of different churches in and around the region of Ephesus. And so he's writing specifically, guys, you've got to manifest this love in your church, in your church environment. And I think sometimes we forget that nearly all the New Testament was written to churches or to leaders in those church environments. Paul's missionary emphasis, if you read throughout, particularly the book of Acts, but elsewhere as he writes letters to Titus and others, his focus was always to plant churches. This is how the gospel is going to work. Raise up disciples to plant churches who can raise up disciples to plant churches. It was always the church where worship happened. It was the church where discipleship happened. It was the church where fellowship happened. It was the church that then released evangelism and spread the gospel throughout the region. You see, there was this undeniable reality throughout. You see it throughout all of the New Testament that we're not just baptized into union with Christ, that we are baptized into communion with Christ's body. And I want to make that point, and I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but I have these conversations all the time, every week, with different people, Christian people, 
but Christians who want to believe but not belong. So we want the union with Christ. We want to to serve and love Christ, but we just want to avoid the communion with his body. I mean, that's the ugly part, isn't it? Like, I'm all for Jesus, church, no thank you. Not interested, too complicated. And people all have their own reasons. They have excuses. They have past hurts. And I don't want to belittle any of those motivations. But I want to make this point. If we are united to Christ, then we are united to his body. And we, we sung about it in one of the songs. There's a great verse in I Believe, talking about I believe in the saints' communion. I believe in the power of the church. The church is God's plan A, and there is no plan B. It's his plan A for worship. It's his plan A for discipleship. It's his plan A for community, for evangelism. It's the vehicle through which the gospel has been spread. As Hebrews talks about it, it will be his vehicle. Do not forsake the coming together of the church even more so as you see the day approaching. It is his plan. And I think we've got to be so careful because if we reject church, which many, many Christians I know, no one here, of course, because you're here this morning, we're not just in danger of rejecting the church. I think so often we're in danger of rejecting Christ himself. That's a big statement. I don't want you to take that at face value. I want you to wrestle with that. And send me your emails this week. You see, we've developed this culture that has this very vague notion of what it means to be a Christian. That somehow there is this possible union with Christ, this service of Him, but it's completely removed or devoid of any corporate expression of church. Christians who say, well, you know, I catch up with coffee for friends. We'll do a Veggie Tales on a Sunday morning as a family. We'll watch a few podcasts. I go to the odd conference here and there. And I'm not belittling any of those things. But if we're united to Christ, then we must be united to his body. It is as simple as that. In fact, you, know, you just look at the book of Acts where Paul was persecuting Christians and Christ himself, he says, why are you persecuting me? He took an attack on his body as an attack personally on him. As he, I believe, includes communion with his body as integral and essential as communion with him. I would really challenge us to think whether we can have one without the other. Or really what John is saying is if you want union with Christ, it's got to manifest. I'm not saying this is a salvation issue. I'm just saying that this is the reality of what John is really trying to point out here. If you want union with Christ, then we must have communion. We must know what that looks like. You see, something happened, and I, I love this picture on Pentecost, and we've already talked this year about Pentecost, and of course the Holy Spirit coming in power, There was all sorts of signs and wonders, but perhaps the most miraculous was it says, and remember that at that time was the Feast of Pentecost. There was thousands of people around. And it says people from every tribe and tongue and background, they all heard the marvelous works of God proclaimed in their own language. What was that all about? I would suggest that it's this this picture that 
If you look at Babel in, in the midst of the sin of humanity, God separated and dispersed with many tribes and tongues. But there's something about the gospel that is designed to bring people back together. It breaks down the dividing walls until we get Revelation 5.9. And it says, this people crying out, Worthy are you who was slain, for by your blood you've ransomed people from every tribe and language and nation and made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they'll reign upon the earth. So there's this picture of what church should be, this gospel that's for everyone. Skin color, nationality, even the Americans we invite in. Church is this supernatural expression of love that breaks down every barrier. We forget the significance we had last night, actually. If you weren't there, you missed out. But this traveling um, Israeli evangelist couple talking about just the wonderful work that God is doing at the moment in Israel and in the Middle East. Literally thousands and thousands of people coming to Christ. And all the stories that I hear, not first-hand accounts, but from people not only in Israel, but they were talking about Iran and Syria, is that in the midst of all the political upheaval, that the gospel is spreading. I'll get the statistics wrong, but something was at 5 or 10 million of Christians now they believe in Iran in the midst of a nation that wants to kill Christians and persecute them. Like the Lord is just doing some phenomenal things in some very dark places. But uh, Carolyn, who was the, the lady, she was raised as a traditional Jew, obviously later in life came to faith in the Messiah, but in, in a strict kosher environment. So they would not associate with Gentiles. Gentiles would not be allowed into their house, she said, unless it was a plumber or they were serving some other purpose. But they, they totally shunned other Gentile believers. And then she got involved in some New Age and uh, other spiritualistic um, areas in the midst of which and i'll probably get the story completely wrong but she had this encounter with jesus jesus appeared to her was it a vision or a manifestation or literally saw his face proclaimed himself to be the messiah and so she um, obviously surrendered her life to christ and that began a new journey but she said the biggest thing was all of a sudden all of these barriers and boundaries were broken down People that I would never have associated with. People that I would have had nothing to do with. People who were my enemies. The Christians were enemies because they persecuted the Jews. That's what she said. All of a sudden, those barriers were down. And I loved Christian people. And so that is the picture of this love that breaks down every barrier. This wonderful picture, a blueprint for his church that Jesus left so marvelous, so innovative. This living, breathing, expanding organism, permeating, transforming the world as we love one another. People that normally we would have nothing to do with. Now, you just can't get that on a podcast. I'm sorry. A podcast is always going to be a one-way journey. So very quickly, that's half of the introduction I just want to give us two thoughts two personal applications and as we as we um, come back in future weeks to this truth we'll expand more there's two realities to this love that we see in this passage number one John says we should not be like Cain number two he says we should Love, even if it costs us. If we have things, we see a brother in need. 
then we need to provide for them. How can God's love abide if there's not a practical outworking? Let me make these two observations. Number one, if we want to have this reality of a community, of a church that is full of this kind of evidence of love, then number one, we've got to deal with stuff. And number two, we've got to love until it hurts. And love always hurts. Love always has a cost involved. True love does. So very quickly, we've got to, we've got to deal with our stuff. What was the issue with Cain without unpacking the story too much? We should not be like Cain. He was someone who through jealousy, through bitterness, and through envy, he eventually ended up murdering his brother. James 3.16 says this, Where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, disorder and every vile practice will abound. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist. You see, there's a saying, I think it's good, it's an old one, but we are not a perfect church and we never will be a perfect church. In fact, as the saying goes, if you're looking for a perfect church, don't join it because you'll only mess it up. We live in a planet of imperfection, but that's a wonderful place that we can be in to practice love because if we're really doing church right then we should have people that are so different than us that they rub us up the wrong way we should have people that really aggravate us and that really annoy us but that's when true love truly comes into its form we're in a season of doing a, a number of marriages and marriage preparation courses, taking couples through that, which I love, uh, and more this year than I can remember in, in a number of years. But I always tell couples preparing for marriage, you know, if, if you're looking for a perfect marriage, then forget about it. Because it's not to be found, it's to be made. It's two imperfect people coming together by the grace of God choosing to lay down their lives for one another with selfless love, standing through the storms of life, giving whatever it takes until love can be perfected in the midst of a process. A marriage that works is a miracle of God's grace. And I don't want to feel, my point is not to put condemnation on those who have had failed marriages. That's another message. But I use that illustration for this reason. The perfect church is not found but it is made. It's made when we're willing to truly die to ourselves. As John says, to lay down our lives for one another and to do it in a way, the second point, until it hurts. There's always a cost involved. And I know it's hard. It's hard when you come along to church and we're so focused, even as I was this week, on all my stuff, thinking, Lord, how am I supposed to come and give encouragement to people? I'm the one who needs encouragement. I'm the one who needs a word and someone to come alongside. And, but do you know what? I've found that the greatest joy for me is never coming along, focusing on my needs and looking for what I can get. It's coming along with the reality of who he is and I'm just here to give. I'm here 
to lay down my life for him. To love because I've been loved, to forgive because I've been forgiven, and to serve because I have been served by the King of heaven. Praise God. Praise God. So I want us to pray. We're going to do communion, but I just want to pray first. I don't know whether Beth is still here. Or Adam or Ali or someone. We can just play. And I want to give us a moment. I want to give us a moment. So just close your eyes. Because I want us, as I said, not, not to have been intellectually stimulated or to have some new piece of information. I don't mind information. It's important. But Christ was never interested in purely informing people. He was interested in transforming people. And this is only something that the supernatural power of God can do in our hearts and lives can bring us to that place where we allow his love not to be something we receive and we never stop receiving i should make that point it's a journey of lord we just need more of your love but that's not the end of itself his desire is that we would reflect we would receive so that we can reflect so that we can be this people you see, the gospel is always the mission. It always is to proclaim the greatness of our God. But love is always the method. And without love, and without love beginning here and now, anything else we do will be of little or no effect. So I just want to ask us in this moment, those two questions. Is there anything that we need to deal with in our own lives Jesus says this if you're coming before the Lord to bring an offering and you know that there is something against a brother stop do not come and bring your offering do not go past go do not collect $100 first stop and deal with that stuff and then come and bring your offering where there's jealousy where there's selfish ambition there's always death. You put two selfish people together, they will always end up hating people. Might not end up in murder, but it kills. It kills relationships, it kills marriages, it kills families, it kills churches. But where there is love and forgiveness, there is life. Glory of God can shine. The evidence of what it truly means to be sons and daughters shines forth. The evidence that Romans says, even all creation is groaning. They're waiting with eager expectation for people who can reflect that sort of love. So God, examine our hearts. And if there is, you know, we're going to come to the table of the Lord in a moment. That's, that's a moment now, not just to receive his love, but to, to lay down stuff. So we recalibrate our hearts on our Savior, His blood that washes us clean. God, we want to come to your table knowing that we have dealt with whatever we need to deal with. Examine our hearts. Spirit of God, shine upon us. Just show us. There's forgiveness. We want to extend that.
this bitterness and envy we're hanging on to. Lord, we want to bring those things to you. And the second question is, how can you and I love in a way that actually costs us? I had someone just this week call up, so blessed. And I said, you know what, I've just, I know there's a few needy people in the church. I've given some money to a few people, but I want to give some more just to the church to be able to pass on. It's not general offerings. I want to give it so that it can be given practically to anyone you know who is in need in the church. And giving till it hurts is not always financial. It can be coming to give just a word of encouragement to someone. It can be even committing, as radical as this is, maybe coming half an hour early to the services so that you can be there for the big coffee break. And for some of us, maybe that's a cost. To say, no, there's a priority in my life of coming to worship God and coming to commune with God's people. And I'm going to be there every Sunday and I'm going to be ready, not just to get, but to give, to love and to love and to love. I just want to give you a moment, as I said, we're going to finish with communion, but just in that quiet place, just allow the Lord, so often I find it's just His mercy, it's His gentle mercy. We just allow Him, He'll just break up the hardness of our heart, He'll shine His light and say, that's it, that's the thing that I'm putting my finger on. Not in a judgmental we, we want his conviction. We want his discipline. We want him to deal with the issues of our heart so that we can be the people he desires us to be. Thank you, God.